I'm trying to elevate small talk to medium talk. I'm Alex Chester, and I don't have a cutoff, so feel free to call me at any time of day or night. And I'm Av Sedensky, and a lot of people sue me because I'm very vulgar. Welcome back to Pretty, Pretty, Pretty Good, a Curb Your Enthusiasm podcast. Uh, this week, Av, my microphone is quarantined in one location, and I am quarantined in another location. So apologies in advance to the listeners for my poor audio quality. But we're here, and we're here to talk about uh, that famous, uh, incredible, incredible television show on HBO, The Wire. It's America, man. Yeah. So season one, episode six of Curb Your Enthusiasm, November 19th, 2000. It is the Wire episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And um, nothing to do with the other uh, Wire on HBO. But um, I have to say that when I had done my rankings a couple of years ago, I had ranked this episode pretty low. But I really, really enjoyed uh, this rewatch that I did the other night. Uh, yeah, I thought this was a very strong episode as well, um, and I, you know, I we considered for a time watching instead the Curb episode of The Wire, but yeah. we decided that the Wire episode of Curb was more in line with the audience's expectations. So we'll see. We maybe we'll get to the Curb episode of The Wire one day. Yeah. Now you have a a movie ladder podcast uh, with with Brendan and Zach, where every episode you guys talk about a different movie that has some relation to the previous movie. So I actually tried to figure out if we could do that for TV. I looked up if there had been any episode of The Wire, the name of which was also the name of a different TV series. And then I had proposed to you that we just do that and troll all our listeners and become a podcast that discusses different shows as, uh, as they approach an episode with the name of a different show. But unfortunately, there is no episode of The Wire that has the name of any other TV show. And so we're going to stick with Curb, I think, for the next uh, 94 episodes. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's nothing I enjoy more than trolling the listeners, but yeah. we got to have the goods to back it up. <laughs> yeah, listener, perhaps. All right, so let's jump into this episode today. We start with Jeff, not with Larry, but with Jeff uh, on the phone arguing with someone about how the underprivileged kid that he sponsored to go to camp set fire to the canteen and his cabin. Now, Av, you and I both went to sleepover camps, and we both witnessed uh, quite our share of shenanigans, but I'm not familiar with anybody ever literally burning down any structures at the camp, so I'm pretty impressed with this kid. The camp, on the other hand, they decide that Jeff is responsible. Now, is Jeff the kid's legal guardian? Like, what reason does Jeff have to be financially responsible for some kid who he just sponsored? Yeah, as far as I can tell, all Jeff did was give money to some organization, whether it's the camp or somebody else, that then allowed a random kid the opportunity to go to summer camp. So he's done nothing but a good deed. Yeah. Um, it's not. I, I, I very much doubt he even chose who this kid is. Like they, they probably just like found. You know, they, they, there's like a group of kids that are like that are you know, don't have the resources to go to camp, and they you know they get sponsored by generous people. Um, I don't. I would assume that Jeff has no other relationship to this person that would entail that he has any responsibility towards their actions. Yeah, and as we're going to learn in this episode, no good deed goes unpunished. Larry remarks to Jeff that this must be the only nice thing Jeff has ever done in his life, 
Larry says the only nice thing he's ever done in his life is he once saw a woman was about to get hit by a car and he yelled, watch out. And she turned to him and screamed at him, don't you tell me what to do. And he got out of the nice business. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, if, if people don't reward you for your good behavior, it just, uh, it doesn't pay. <laughs> yeah. By the way, when Larry, and I guess maybe I'm just extra sensitive to this because of these, uh, you know, high virus times in which we live. But when Larry walks in to Jeff's office at the very beginning of the episode, he asks Jeff for a tissue, which Jeff doesn't have. And there's no follow up on that. So, uh, you know, I was a little bit worried about that. Maybe he should uh, throw, throw a gallon of Purell at Larry also just to be safe. Anyway, Larry and Jeff agree that Pyro is a bad maniac, uh, worse than Klepto. Uh, Av, what's your favorite yeah. kind of maniac? Um, probably uh, Megalomania. Oh, I was going to say Nympho. Oh, Nymphomaniac. Nymphomaniac isn't, isn't terrible, unless you're on the, uh, the receiving end of Nymphomania. You know, you, know, you might not. You, might, you don't want to wake up to the wrong thing. Let's put it like that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, anyways, Jeff's assistant interrupts uh, the Jeff-Larry conversation to tell Larry that Cheryl has called and asked Larry to be home early to deal with the wire incident. Yet again, another episode where Larry's cell phone seems not to exist. So Cheryl, in order to speak to her husband, has to call Jeff's office, leave a message with Jeff's assistant, who will then convey the message. Very odd. But anyways, so what is this wire incident? Larry explains to Jeff that there's an annoying wire blocking the view from their backyard. They want to bring it down. They need all the neighbors to sign on board first. Five of the neighbors already have, but the sixth is holding out until they can meet uh, Larry and Cheryl first. Um and did you, I don't know how much you remembered about this episode of, uh, but like, as soon as you hear that, even if you don't remember anything, like, you know, like, all right, there's going to be an interaction, a conflict of some uh, sort with these neighbors. Yes. Um, and Larry commits in this scene what is one of my least favorite pet peeves, or I guess my, one of my biggest pet peeves, which is that he refers to Cheryl as my wife in the presence of somebody who very, like, knows his wife very well and, like, obviously knows her name. Um, and I really hate it when people do that. Whenever someone does that in my presence, I say, oh, your wife? Um, is that, are you still married to the same person? Because I've met her, like, 600 times. Oh, okay. Um, drive, so, drive, so I should only refer to my wife as Jen in your presence. I can't yeah, because I know because I know her. And I know her name. Like if we're yeah. talking, like why would you refer to her as my as my wife as if she's not someone that I know? <laughs> I don't know. I've never really thought about that before. You probably you probably don't do it. Most people don't. Most people refer to their wife by name when they're talking yeah. to somebody who knows them. Like if you're talking to like someone at work or you know in the well, pharmacy, I'll you say, say my wife or my husband or my daughter. But uh, the reason don't, I, I don't want to adopt this as a universal policy is because I'm sensitive to the reverse, which is I'm talking to a friend of mine who I should know their wife's name, but I have forgotten. And so it's much easier to say your wife. But if they know that I'm only saying your wife when I've forgotten, then it's going to out me. You know what I mean? So I want the interchangeability between my wife and Jen so that I can use it in reverse. I suppose. But there's nothing that says you can't refer to your wife as Jen, but then refer to other people as your wife. But by the same standard. But if they assume I know them, right? I guess. Anyway, <laughs> I guess I don't know. It just it always it feels like like they're being protective over the information. It's like, no, I know her. Like we just had dinner last week. What are you doing? Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I, that's not a pet peeve of mine. But um, but also the Jeff Cheryl the Jeff Cheryl relationship early on in the series is not that well developed, and we're going to learn in this episode that the Susie Larry relationship is uh, virtually non-existent. Although it uh, really uh, takes off in this takes episode. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it, Larry was probably better off when it was non-existent. Yes. Um, so anyway, so the next door neighbors, the neighbors come over. Uh, we're now at Larry's house with Cheryl. Um, by the way, Larry and Cheryl's house, not that great for uh, like, you know, a guy as wealthy as, as he would have been at the time. 
Yeah, but although I guess we've we've talked about this yeah. before, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how clear it is how wealthy he is at this point because I really I think it's really the like the syndication over the ensuing ten or twenty years and then the sale to like Hulu and Netflix and all that sort of thing that really amplified him from like a millionaire to like somebody who has like hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, I tried to Google Larry's net worth at different points in time, but it wasn't so easy to do. If you had to guess, what are you giving him as his net worth in the year 2000? If I put an over under at 20 million, are you going under? Um, I think I might go under at that point. I really don't know. Um, I, I'm not, you know, this is not an honest, educated guess. I know that now it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 250 million. Yeah. But this, this is like literally right when Seinfeld came off the air recently. And of course, there was, it was in limited syndication, but it hadn't yet reached the point where like it was on TBS six times a day and on uh, Channel 11. I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure it was on every single night on like three different channels, even like when we were in high school. It was like All 10 right, o'clock on one channel, 11 o'clock on another channel. I don't know. I don't know enough about how syndication money works. If a listener knows, let us know. All right, yeah. I'm, that's, that's not my recollection, but I could yeah. be wrong. And, you know, I, I don't know if there's a good way to research this. I'm sure there is. So yeah. we probably should have I mean, done that even, before. Even, but even – there's really no way to know. Like all these net worth numbers, even like the ones for today are, are so inaccurate. So, yeah, who knows? Anyhow, yeah. Um, all right. So the couple sees the wire. Uh, they agree it should be buried. And um, as they're having this conversation, Jeff calls Larry's house phone, and Larry says, let the machine get it, even though, much like in Seinfeld, whenever the machine, first of all, I like how the machine plays so loudly that anyone anywhere in the house or even in the backyard can hear it. And anytime you say, let the machine get it in front of someone else in Seinfeld or in Curb, there's obviously going to be uh, a message that, you know, maybe that it's going like the other people hearing it is going to have a significant effect. And yeah, I, th- I thought for sure, like Jeff was going to say something bad that was going to like cause a problem. So I was like, I was like relieved that it was like, for now, this is a good thing. Yeah. In my memory, Jeff called to say something about Julie Louise Dreyfus, which is how she comes up. But, you know, she, that's not how she comes up because my memory of the episode was a little bit off. But yeah, actually, so what Jeff's message is, is he's complaining that the kid he sponsored cost $17,000 in damages to the camp. The camp now wants Jeff to pay for it, so Jeff needs a lawyer who handles that sort of thing. And, of course, the neighbor just happens to be a lawyer. His wife says, Rutgers and the University of Vermont, too. Which, I was a little confused by that. Like, those schools are fine, but they're not like schools that are going to blow Larry's socks off. Larry's not from Vermont or New Jersey, so I'm not sure why the guy's wife thinks that Larry will be so impressed by the University of Vermont. Like, are they known for their law Yeah, well, I'm I'm not sure, but, you know, not all of us went to Harvard, Alex. (laughs) No, no, but if you're, like, bragging to, like, Larry David about, like, the, the school of law you went to, yeah, right. those aren't those aren't like particularly impressive yeah. schools. Again, like, unless they might be perfectly fine. I'm Vermont. sure they're perfectly fine schools. Yeah, I'm sure they are. But unless he's from Vermont, it just doesn't seem like a thing that's you know gonna. He's like, oh wow, well I'm from uh, Brooklyn, so yeah. Anyways, um, so but the wife is a is a Seinfeld fanatic, and she just wants to hear about the interactions that they've had with the cast. She wants to know like has the cast come over to this very house? Have they gone swimming in the pool? But then we turn out we learn that it's actually the husband who's obsessed with Julia. And wants Larry to set up a meeting. And Larry, again, being a very, you know, Cheryl told him, be on your best behavior. And Larry really is. He says, I'll see what I can do. I can't guarantee anything. And it's at this point that the husband turns into, like, the world's biggest asshole. He basically, th- <laughs> yeah, yeah. he threatens Larry that, you know, he can't really guarantee that he can sign the papers to bury the wire. You know, he, he could, you know, nothing's guaranteed. And he basically implies 
that unless uh, he gets to meet Julia, he ain't signing those papers and the wire isn't coming down. And it's just yeah, when, uh, when, when Dean was later asked about this incident, he just kept shouting, no quid pro quo. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so his name is Dean. Larry hates him so much. He's staring at him angrily as the couples end their meeting. Uh, the wife, Phyllis, she offers Larry some casserole for dinner. Larry says he has something wrong with his stomach. Um, but as soon as they're gone, we know that a rant is coming. And in the very next scene, we cut to Larry and Cheryl's bedroom, and Larry is screaming, fuck him. I will move before I call Julia. Larry's just incensed that the guy is such an incredible asshole, uh, which he really is. Like, it's one thing to say, you know, I really hope you can do your best. And, and, and then you sign the papers to sort of show that you're putting in your effort. But to literally withhold the papers until you meet Julia is just an incredibly obnoxious thing. Yeah, not to mention, as we'll learn later in the episode, and, you know, we've, you know we, it's kind of implied already, like, Larry is already hooking him up with a client. Yeah. Like, he's giving him business. That's already, like, uh, sorry? Yeah, he's giving him business. Yeah, like, you're, he's, like, he's hooking you up with business. Like, that should be, like, more than enough to, like, sign a stupid form that, like, doesn't hurt you. Like, he, this guy is just, like, he's, like, totally off the rocker. Yeah, it's Zedanevzelo Chaser, as we would say in Talmudic terms. I'm not going to bother translating that. Um, by the way, and also, as Larry asks correctly, like, what does this middle-aged guy need this meeting for? Like, does he think he's going to become friends with Julia? And I think Larry's completely right. Like, when I was a kid, I always wanted autographs. I always wanted to, like, meet, like, celebrities. Now, like, there's no actor that I have any particular desire to meet. Like, I'm not 20 years old. I'm not single. Like, what am I going to get out of it, you know? Yeah, I was I was just in L.A. Uh, in January and I like kept going on this same rant about like people who like spend some of their days there, like staking out certain places because they heard like celebrities go there. And I was like, what is exactly your plan? Like you're hoping yeah. that like you're going to be like standing across the street and seeing like, oh, is that Kate Blanchett? I think it might be her. I'm like, you could see pictures of these people online at any time where yeah. you know it's actually them. Yeah. Like, it's, I just like, don't understand it. Like, and like, best case scenario is you're going to say, yes, that was a celebrity. You're not talking to them. At most, you're getting like a hello. Like, there, there's no relationship being pursued here. I just, like, I, I'm completely baffled by the interest in this from people. But, and like, and Larry's exactly right. Like, best case scenario here is like, you meet Julia Lee Dreyfus for 10 minutes. You exchange pleasantries and then you move on with your lives. Like, it's sure it's nice if, like, you know, spontaneously this happens and, like, it's this little serendipitous thing. But, like, to hold back something, you know, in order to get this, like, amazing experience, it's just, like, I, it's crazy. Yeah, it's like, okay, you're going to meet Julia for five minutes and go on with your life. You know who's going to be your neighbor every day? The Davids. So why are you going out of your way to piss them off? You know, it just seems very Yeah, and, 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 and so far, all you know about this guy is that you met him for five minutes and he got you a client. So maybe it's yeah. worth being nice to this guy. He yeah. seems to be fairly well connected. Yeah, that's, that's another good point. Um, by the way, Cheryl, and one of my sort of themes of these first six episodes has been, like, we know that Larry David is not the greatest guy. But my, one of my theses is that Cheryl is actually like a bad person also. And to me, this is a classic example because Cheryl is being so selfish. She's like, you know, begging Larry, make this one phone call to make the house completely perfect. Uh, she'll probably think it's funny. She's like desperately trying to convince him. If the shoe was on the other foot, Cheryl would never encourage like Larry to bother somebody for some unrelated thing to get a personal favor. Like Cheryl would be against that kind of behavior. But when it benefits her, all of a sudden she's like, yeah, I don't care if you harm your relationship with Julia. And, and like that's, and it's sort of, and that was like a thing that annoyed me last episode where she was sort of against Larry getting Diane Keaton's phone number from the interior decorator. Cheryl just in general seems to be like very selfish and like if it benefits her, she's in favor of it and otherwise she just doesn't care. So I'm, I'm anti-team um, Cheryl. 
Yeah, that could be. That's definitely something to look out for. Um, she definitely is harder on Larry than is necessary lots of times. But just and imagine seems- Cheryl. Imagine Larry saying to Cheryl, "Can you please call your friend to do me a favor?" And Cheryl would say, "No, it's not appropriate. It's socially inappropriate. I'm not going to do it." You know. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, and like she seems to like want to get like all the benefits out of like Larry's fame and fortune yeah. without you know some of the things that go along with that sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and Larry uh, tells Cheryl, as you pointed out, he thought they had the deal cinched when he had found the lawyer a client and Jeff, um, you know, which which should have been more than enough for this guy. And Larry suddenly remembers, oh, I need to call Jeff and tell him what happened. But it's 1020 p.m. And Cheryl says it's a 10 p.m. cutoff. Larry insists everyone knows the cutoff is 1030. Cheryl says, no, they have kids. Larry calls. Susie answers. He woke her up. It does not go. It did not work out well. And Cheryl gloats. Uh, what's your take on the cutoff? Um, well, it's hard to say because, like, now these cu- types of cutoffs are pretty much out the window because even, like, 10 years ago they were out the window because, like, everyone had, like, their own cell phone where, like, you're not risking waking up, like, an entire house for the most part. People could, like, are generally expected that they're going to put their phone on, like, silent or vibrate or something when they go to sleep where, like, you don't have to feel like it's your fault if you call somebody and you woke them up. Now, even more so, everybody texts. So, like, you would just, like, text the person and say, hey, are you still up? Can I ask you something? And if you didn't hear from them too, for two hours, you would assume they're sleeping. Um, back then, I think uh, 10 o'clock is about right. I think yeah. up until 10 o'clock, like, you should feel pretty comfortable calling another adult. Um, after 11 o'clock is definitely too late. So I think, you know, they're having the argument at least in the right region, at least. Um, but I think 10 o'clock is, is a pretty safe cutoff. Yeah, I still argue with my wife about this to this day because, you know, as you say, these things are out the window. My wife says you're not allowed to text somebody after 10 p.m. Which is insane. No, that's like, wrong. That's, that's I'm not, like, you, I'm how like, could you not text someone? Like, I know. And also, we're in like, group chats. They could, with they lots could choose of to ignore your text. Who are in different and, time and, you know, zones. And call you back in the morning. Yeah. No, I, I'm fully on your side. It's enraging to me. Like, again, when we're in a group chat with people on different time zones, by Jen's definition, you can never send a message because it's almost always if people are overseas. It's, all, it's 10 p.m. somewhere. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, I think Dr. Jen is wrong on this one. I think yeah. there is no time of day where it is because of like the time inappropriate to text someone because yeah. it is extremely it doesn't interfere with them in any way. They can easily ignore you. They could easily write back like can't talk right now. Can we you know, I'm getting into bed. Can we talk tomorrow? Um, and like and then also like gives you the ability to say, well, actually, this is like really important. Can we talk right now? Whereas, like, yeah. if you have to just call them, like, there's there's no way to really let the person know in advance this is an important call versus a meaningless call. Um, I think with texting, like, you're, you know, pretty much anything goes. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, there's limitations. Like, I wouldn't say text your electrician at midnight for a non-emergency. But if it's like a friend... Totally acceptable. Yeah, I mean, it also also just like texting gives you the ability to just like frame the conversation however you want. Like I could text you at two in the morning and say, hey, Alex, uh, I don't know if you're awake. If you are like, can I ask you something Um, if you're not or if like you're just like now is not a good time. Just let me know and like we'll talk in the morning and no harm, no foul. Yeah, put your phone away or put your phone on silent if you know if you don't want to be interrupted. These phones all have these capabilities in a way that in 2000 they didn't. You called somebody, their phone rang. There was no way to control that. So. Anyway, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, it's the next day. Jeff and Larry are at lunch. Jeff is explaining that Susie's pissed um, because of Larry's uh, late night call. Jeff reports that uh, Larry's lawyer friend Dean sucks. uh, And Jeff knows that Larry is basically forcing him to use this idiot lawyer to get his wire down. And Jeff wants to fire him, but Larry begs him not to. And the Larry's argument is that, yeah, the guy's a total prick. But because of that, he'll do a good job. And Larry says to Jeff, you know, in business, you're a prick, and that's what makes you good. 
Um, Larry definitely stereotypes, like, uh, later on in the series, Larry will stereotype that if you're a Jew, it makes you a good lawyer. And so Larry here assumes that if you're an <laughs> asshole, it makes you a good lawyer, which, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I took, ex- I took exception to that because like, I, in my opinion, you could tell me if this is different in your experiences. Like this is like a stereotype and there are certain lawyers who like, who actually think this and they practice this way. And like, they think that like by being a bigger asshole, they're helping their client and helping their case. And my experience is like the exact opposite that people like dig in when they feel like the person on the other side is being a jerk and that. And obviously, it's, I guess it depends on the type of law that you're practicing. The type of law that I do where it's like mo- basically you know, collaborative to an extent and like you're just trying to get something done together, nice people get things done with each other and jerks just stand in the way and cause things to, to not work out. I don't know yeah. if that's your experience. No, I, I, de- I definitely agree with you as well. Now, now this guy presumably is a, a litigator who's going to go you know, fight the camp about the obligation of this, of this fee. So it might be a little bit different than the kind of law we practice, but... Yeah, but the stereotype that Larry's perpetuating here, I would agree. It's a, he's an anti-lawyerite, and um, you know I won't stand for it. Um, anyways, they should have their own schools. Yes, um, you know Alexander Chester, J.D. And if I wasn't at my son's wedding, all right. Um, anyways, while they're talking, this was another sort of unexplained thing, like you know Larry with the tissue in the first scene. While they're talking, you hear someone drop a glass or a plate in the back of the restaurant. Did you pick up on that? Yeah, I did, and I was expecting it to go somewhere, and then that's like the last thing we heard of it. Um, It reminded me of there was in in the in the Ted and Mary episode. They kept bringing up like the ten dollars that like Larry owed Ted, and just like nothing ever came of it. So I always wonder with these things with Curb, like whether there was something, and then like they just you know it got cut out of the script because they're generally pretty good about like you know telegraphing certain things that like you know as you mentioned with like the voicemail that like they don't like usually like waste too many things in curb unless there's a purpose to it so uh, that was very weird one yeah now the weird thing so like when it's a dialogue thing like that like the example you just gave yeah then they might have changed the story or edited something out or changed their mind whatever but when a when somebody drops something in the background is it possible that somebody just literally dropped something while they were recording some extra and they just forgot to edit it out like it wasn't even intentional. I guess, but like, <laughs> I guess, but you would think that. I mean, I guess maybe, and they only shot one yeah. scene of it, and no, you're right. they had it nothing else to use. I mean, yeah. you th- you would think that like on set they would have re- they would have heard a glass crash. Now, do you remember when Arrested Development came out with the season on Netflix? How they would drop these sort of Easter eggs, like they like they would have the sound of getting a um in in uh, instant message in the. Do you remember? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't remember that. I did. So, I saw that season, but I don't remember that. So one, they did a few things like this where they would play during the episode the kinds of sounds that your computer tends to play, knowing that people were watching this on Netflix on their laptops with like other tabs open, as sort of like a thing, as sort of like a trollish way to trick you into going to like, oh, did I get a message? But it wasn't. It was just playing on that episode of of, of um, Arrested Development. Arrested Development. Got it. When I was watching the. Um the documentary last year on Dr. Ruth, the the opening scene of the of the documentary is she asks Alexa to like give her like a Wikipedia about herself, I think. Um, which of course then triggered Alexa in my house to do the same exact thing. So that was quite funny, but also kind of annoying. Um yeah. So but yeah, that's obviously not the case here. So but I who knows why that that plate drops. But anyways, Jeff explains to Larry the camp is kicking the kid out and Jeff is gonna host him. Uh this does not seem like a good idea. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so yeah. going back to what we said before, so now they're saying though, like that the kid specifically wants to come stay with Jeff because he's afraid of his mom. Yeah. So maybe that suggests like that he he has met Jeff before or he knows. I don't know. I mean, it could be that he just met him once, like as part of like you know maybe there was like a program for all the people that are sponsoring kids or something like that. That wouldn't be uncommon, but it's a it's a bit of a stretch for him to come stay at Jeff's house now. 
Yeah, we never get to see the kid. I would have liked to see, you know, like a young Pete Davidson, that kind. I mean, obviously not Pete Davidson because he would have been like two years old at the time. But sort of that kind of an actor, I would have been sort of funny to see him. But we never do see him. Um, but anyways, Larry tells Jeff, like, this is insane. This kid has burnt down two buildings at camp. And Larry asks Jeff if he has insurance. And then he says to Jeff, uh, you know, send him to my house to burn it down so I don't have to worry about the wire anymore, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, not a bad solution. Yeah. Anyway, the next scene, we have Larry and Julia making her uh, debut appearance. They're approaching Dean's door. Um, presumably this has been a scheduled meeting and, um, Larry thanks Julia who warns that she only has 10 minutes and Phyllis Weinstock, that's the wife, answers the door and she's completely hysterical, makeup all over the face, can't stop crying. Av, why is Phyllis so upset? Um, well, she says her cat died, which yeah. I, I agree. I don't know why she's so upset. <laughs> this is, um, I mean, I, I some, people, offend, some people like cats. I don't want to offend any, uh, you know, uh, cat lovers who are listening, but like this is psychopathic behavior. Like, she's, like, inconsolable, this woman. Yeah, people get very attached to their animals. Yeah. It's not a thing that I understand, but, you know, yeah. I see it. I've seen it. Yeah, anyway, she welcomes Larry and Julia to sit down. They ask where Dean is. He's with Jeff, Phyllis explains. Julia doesn't even know who Jeff is, which I thought is kind of funny. Um, Phyllis explains that Dean said he'd be there in 25 minutes, and she promised she would not let Julia leave. Uh, Julia has to leave, and that's before we realize, like, how crazy of a person Phyllis is. Like, at one point, this is my favorite She's she points to her head with both pointer fingers and in sort of a sing songy voice, she says, brainstorm. Phyllis has just had a complete. <laughs> and then she never finishes that sentence. Yeah, there is. Yeah, something's missing here. Yeah, something's missing. All right. Um, so she goes to uh, she goes to get her camcorder to record Julia while she's getting it. Julia and Larry agree that she's a lunatic. She comes back with the camcorder and asks Larry to talk about Jerry Seinfeld and all the young girls that he dates. <laughs> Which is like, if you think that these are like two of Larry, Jerry's good friends, like why, isn't that like a really strange and inappropriate thing to say? Very odd. And uh, but yeah, Larry, Phil, yeah. <laughs> yeah Phil, Phyllis's craziness is only overshadowed by Dean's assholeness. Yeah, that couple is just a nightmare to deal with. Um, but Larry responds very coolly to Phyllis's question. He says, uh, he explains that Jerry is a eunuch. He removed his testicles at the age of 13 in order to perform in the Beth Shalom Choir. And Phyllis says to Julia, oh, is that true, Julia? Um, Julia is getting very, very annoyed at this whole thing. She's not a fan of the camcorder. And Larry goes to call Jeff to find out how long ago Dean left. But it turns out Dean is still with Jeff. Uh, so, you know, so Phyllis sort of lied when she said that Dean was on his way home. So Larry comes back to tell Julia they have to go. But in this absence of Larry, Julia has somehow become interested in Phyllis because it turns out Phyllis is an antique jewelry dealer and she has a bracelet Julia likes, the very same bracelet that Larry was trying to buy for Cheryl when he got in the fight with Richard a couple episodes ago. Now, first of all, why was there no follow-up there? Like, why did Larry, uh, did Richard buy it for his girlfriend? Is that what ended up happening? Because we saw that they raced and then they fought. Like, who ended up getting that bracelet? Neither one of them? I think the implication from this episode is that Richard ended up with it. So Richard ends up with that one, but then where does Phyllis get this other copy of it in order to sell to Julia? Yeah, yeah it's not clear. Yeah. So it wasn't clear to me. Is that the very same? Or are they making multiples of this? If they're making multiple versions, it seems like Larry could just get another one for Cheryl. But anyways, uh, I, I guess I'm fast forwarding the answers. They did. They are because Larry's back home now. He's arguing with Cheryl who asks Larry to ask Julia to come back and meet Dean again. Again, I'm just shocked by how selfish Cheryl is being here. Uh, Larry thinks it's a terrible idea. Cheryl's trying to guilt him. Meanwhile, Larry can't find his little notepad in which he keeps his ideas. He remembers that he left it at Julia's because I guess he had gone to Julia's before they had gone together to Dean's. 
And so he calls her because it's only 9.50 p.m., so it's 10 minutes before the cutoff. Cheryl says, no, it's too close. Like, if the cutoff is 10, the cutoff is 10, right? 10, right? If the cutoff is 10, the cutoff is 10. Yeah, I agree. You can't have, like, no, uh, uh, like a, whatever. A, uh, anyway, so it turns out that Larry woke her up because she has a 9.30 cutoff. And uh, uh, Cheryl, again, gloating at Larry waking people up and violating the cutoff. Now, Larry leaves to go show up at Julie's house to search for the notepad in person, which is quite strange because if he woke them up when he called at 9.50, what time is it now? Like, best case scenario, it's like 10.30 or 11, all right? All right. Yeah, I mean, we don't know how far they are, but yeah, it's for sure after 10. It's after 10. Um, and I mean, I guess he must have left it off on the phone with her. I'm coming over. Yeah. And she probably, you know, tried to prevent that, but he made it clear he's coming and he's yeah. coming. So yeah, Julia and her real life husband, uh, Brad, are clearly annoyed at Larry's presence. They're arguing about the cutoff with him. Uh, they say 930 is stand for families with kids. And then Brad points out, and it's really nine o'clock for visitors. <laughs> yeah, which is fair. I mean... <laughs> yeah. Coming into the, someone's house for sure makes an even bigger disruption than just yeah. calling. Yeah. And as we see, Larry proceeds to wake up their children, and yeah. you know now their night is basically ruined. Yeah, Larry insists on looking everywhere in the kitchen, the patio, the office. He's being very annoying. They want to kick him out. He gets a big fight with them. They finally kick him out. He's woken up their son. Um, when they finally kick him out, Julia says to Brad, I got to call Jerry back in New York to tell him about this. What's the cutoff in New York? Brad says the cutoff in New York is midnight. Even if it's midnight, it's way past that because it's at least 10 o'clock here. Let's say it's 1030. That would be 130 in the morning in New York. And Julia says yeah. it doesn't matter. These are extenuating circumstances. Calling <laughs> to complain about Larry's behavior, about <laughs> yeah. violating the cutoff, is, I mean, it's, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, she, she could probably wait until tomorrow to tell Jerry that Larry David is an asshole. Yeah. I'm guessing that he already knows that. Yeah, no, this must happen at 130 in the morning. Anyways. Um, the next scene is Larry approaching Jeff's house and the door is open. He, so he sort of walks in and he hears Susie screaming at Jeff. Je the kid has ransacked their house, stolen their jewelry and their wedding video. And Susie is really going to town on Jeff. She's calling him a fat fucking asshole. Like this is as bad as Susie's ever been. Um, and this is just like a dynamite performance in season one for Susie. Yeah, this is legendary. Yeah. I was trying to think of sort of versions of, of where someone sort of broke out onto the scenes and immediately was so dominant. I mean, to me, Susie's performance in this episode is like Randy Moss's rookie season for the Vikings in 1998. It's like Tiger Woods in that very first um, master, uh, Masters. It's like LeBron against the Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals in 2007. Like, we have never seen someone so young, so early in their career, just burst out just an incredible performance like Susie has here. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, a, a thing to behold. Yeah. Um, then she starts yelling at Larry for having woken her up in the middle of the night. Then she asks why he's there. And Larry sheepishly says he's there to play Jeff's, Jeff's new computer golf game. But it turns out the kids stole the computer along with the TV, along with the DVD player. But it's always funny when like sort of historically, when like the things that you would like would brag about, like the valuable items in your house would be your TV or your DVD player. Like those things have like no value today. Like a brand new TV, like a top of the line TV, once it's used, it's worth nothing. You can get it on Craigslist for a hundred bucks, you know. It's like not worth stealing. Yeah, I, I, I always, I always say that you know, like burglars, you know, I, I really don't want them into my house. But you know, if they come, like just, just leave me alone and take whatever you want because I really don't have anything of value. Yeah. As you said, like my, my big TV is probably the most expensive thing I have, and I paid like I don't know six hundred dollars for it six months ago. So it's probably worth, as you said, two hundred bucks now at most. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, I have you know maybe like one piece of silver or something, but like nothing, you know. So. 
you yeah. know, take whatever, you know, take my DVDs, take my books. I mean, I don't want you to, but like, it's gonna be a pain in the ass to get that stuff back. But you're not, co- you're not walking away with any value here. Yeah, although this kid is committed, like he's stealing a wedding video. You're not doing that because you want that. You're doing that just to screw the people. So yeah, yeah. well, maybe he just grabbed stuff and like didn't really pay attention to what it was. I don't know. Yeah, burglars are stupid. Yeah. Um, by the way, Susie uh, just over and over she calls Jeff a fat fuck. She calls him pathetic. Then she starts yelling at Larry again. She says, you know I have trouble sleeping. And when he professes ignorance, she accuses Jeff, you never told him about my trouble sleeping? Which, so I don't. So now she wants her husband to blab about her personal health issues with his friends and clients? Like, that's very odd to me. I, I think Susie might just be angry and is yeah. lashing out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although she is right about the 10 o'clock cutoff. Larry did violate that. So she's right about that. Yeah, but it has uh, nothing to do with like with the current state of affairs and why yeah. she's actually angry. Yeah, Some, exactly. Sometimes angry people tend to uh, yell about things that are not on at the matter at hand when yeah. they're in a state of anger. And they, and they love to be reminded of that while in their state of anger. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. You should, what you should do is you should tell them to calm down that it's yeah. not a big deal. Yeah. Now, Jeff says to her, you know, these are stolen items. They're just things. They can be replaced, which is a nice attitude to have. But Susie starts talking about her grandmother's brooch. She brought over from Russia, where she survived a pogrom. She survived her whole life just to give it to Susie. Susie storms off to check if the brooch is gone. Uh, I, I didn't even know that they gave out brooches in yeah. the pogroms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you need a memento, you know. Um, the Cossacks killed my family, and all I have is this fucking brooch. Um, prediction, uh, of course, it's gone. Uh, or, or to quote Susie, it's gone. You fucking motherfucking, I'll kill you, Jeff. You're a cocksucker motherfucker. Direct quote. By the way, this episode is uh, should not be listened to. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're going to rate this uh, explicit content. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, by the way, while she's gone looking for the brooch, Larry apologizes for walking in and tries to bail. But Jeff is desperate to keep him there because he needs some kind of like protection like from protection. Susie. Yeah, he needs a he needs a buffer. Yeah, exactly. And then um, Susie says, "You don't care because it's nothing that you care about." And all of a sudden, Jeff realizes his baseball cards, his Mickey Mantle, might be gone as well. So Jeff runs off to look after those. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's quite a scene at the uh, at the Green household. <laughs> Where were they, by the way? How long did they have this kid empty? Like, did this kid have his own car? Like, how is he making off with like all these like heavy pieces of a? Uh, of equipment like you know television yeah these these are all good questions yeah this kid is a uh, quite a piece of work anyways uh larry gets home where cheryl's very excited to show him something and larry says oh you found my notepad uh, hopefully and she being the insanely selfish woman that i've established her to be says no this is way better it's the bracelet i wanted from the store like it's so selfish like th- anyways um cheryl then shows it to larry and asks him to put it away from her for her but she's like running out the door and as she's leaving julia's coming over we don't exactly know why Larry apologizes for his insane behavior last night. And Julia asks Larry if she, if he happens to have found her new bracelet, which is missing. And of course, Cheryl just left it on the, on the counter and Larry hasn't put it away. Like uh, Cheryl told him to yet. And so Larry tries to explain, well, actually Cheryl just bought the same one, but before he can say that Julia finds it sitting there and she's convinced that uh, Larry stole her brace. (laughs) Which I thought was very funny. Which I thought was very funny. Yeah, I, although, you know, maybe based on your uh, scouting report of Cheryl, maybe we shouldn't trust her that she bought it at the store. Maybe she stole it from Julia somehow. Yeah, I'm not sure how she would have got it. Yeah, but um, Larry tries to insist at Cheryl's, and Julia is, like, so disappointed in Larry. She doesn't believe him. She doesn't even want the bracelet anymore. So she's just going to leave thinking that it's that it's stolen. And I'm wondering, like, Larry would ask Cheryl. It's the kind of thing that would happen. It doesn't happen in the episode. But Larry would ask Cheryl, hey, can you just call Julia and tell her? that um, you didn't steal it, much like he'll later ask Cheryl to call 
someone to say that he that she's the one who left the the, the water ring on the table because she doesn't respect wood, right? Um, right? But Cheryl, of course, would refuse because there's nothing in it for her because she's selfish. <laughs> Anyways, um, as Julia's fighting with Larry about the bracelet, Dean shows up. And Ju- Julia turns and she yells at Dean as, as off as you just correctly put out. When someone's angry, they're angry at everybody. She's yelling at Dean for not having kept his appointment last time and she storms out. And, and Dean says, I'm nauseous. She's certainly a lot different than on television. But Larry's excited because, first of all, he reassures Dean, she's not mad at you, she's mad at me. But, um, you know, Larry's excited because Dean got his meeting with Julia. But Dean says, this wasn't a meeting, it was an encounter. And then Dean says, just such an obnoxious asshole, just dripping with, like, obnoxious lawyerly assholery. We have a divergence of opinion. This happens all the time in the law. One person sees it one way, another person sees it another way. You saw this as a meeting. I just saw it as a horrible moment in my life. <laughs> yeah, this is this is also a very very uh, Banya esque soup is not a yes, meal. This is yes. not a meeting; it's an encounter. Yes, um, but this guy is such a stupendous asshole. Larry kicks him out, and as he's doing so, it turns out the reason Dean came over. So so Julia came over to ask in person for her bracelet. That's why Julia came over. She couldn't just call, right? Yeah, it's it's not really clear why she's yeah. there. I guess. So Dean came over because he found Larry's notebook, which Larry had apparently left at Dean's house. Larry thanks him for returning it, but Dean insists on being given the reward because he notes that on the front page, Larry had written, or someone had written, $500 to whoever returns this to L. David. And Dean says sort of smarmily, I put two and two together. I figured the L stood for Larry. Was I right? Larry, was I right? <laughs> and Larry <laughs> yeah, calls I mean, him did, Sherlock. Did, did, <laughs> he, he, his, uh, his dickishness really goes to a whole other level in this yeah. last scene. It's incredible. Um, anyways, Larry says he's going to get a check. Maybe get yourself a new sweater because, uh, yeah, Dean is wearing a, quite an ugly sweater. Wearing, uh, quite an ugly sweater. Anyway, Actually, I shouldn't, even have, I shouldn't even have said that because it's about to go to an even bigger level. Yeah, so we cut to Larry and Cheryl sitting in their backyard reading unhappily with the wire above their heads, which means that this guy got a client, he got $500, he got to meet Julia, and he still did not sign the papers. So they do not have the wire above their heads. And that's how the episode ends. <laughs> yeah, this guy is uh, he's a real he's a real piece of work. Yeah. Who's your come with guy for this episode? There, I don't think there was a clear one this episode. Um, but I think I'm going to go with Jeff just because I think he was kind of fun to be around, like kind of just like kind of Schadenfreude, but also like he kind of has like a fun attitude about what's happening to him, even though he's just like getting screwed from every direction. Um, so yeah, that's why I went with him. There, and there was nobody else that really stood out to me as like a fun person to be around in this one. Oh, so I've been defining. I thought come with guy was sort of the name of our of our just award for sort of the MVP, the non Larry David MVP of the episode. And so to me, this episode just has, it's a stacked deck because Dean is just a tremendous, insufferable bag of douche like that we've never seen. But then Susie, as I said, has that historic rant on Jeff. Just, I mean, I'm in shock by Susie. Like we know Susie now in season 10, we assume we expect her to come at Larry and to come at Jeff, especially like that. But in 2000, no one had ever seen a woman treat her husband on television the way that Susie treats Jeff in that one episode. That's incredible. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess I guess I'm getting a little blurry on the definitions, um, yeah. especially since I think we will we're going to be introducing a new uh, a new award. So I was kind of going, I was contrasting oh, I it to that. I see. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, you know, Susie is probably the right decision. She like she's completely steals the scene that she's in, and that's like the most memorable thing from this episode, probably. So are you switching from Jeff to Susie? Yeah, I'll switch from Jeff to Susie. All right, so Susie's going to get it as the come with guy. I'm going to give it to Dean just because he's just a tour de force. (laughs) 
that is a segue, I guess, into our other award. So why don't you tell us about the other award that we're giving today? So a uh, we're gonna you know preempt the mailbag slightly here. This is a uh, a new category that was suggested by listener Amir, and he, what he suggests is that he believes that probably on every episode there's somebody who can be crowned as the worst person on Curb in that episode. Um, so what he proposes is that we do a weekly segment where we crown a worst person for each week and then also have a running kind of championship belt of worst person where each episode will determine if the current worst person from the new episode defeats the person who had been holding the belt until now. So basically every week we're going to kind of update this and see if you know it stands where it was or if we have a new belt holder of the worst person on curb so he he took the liberty of going back and crowning a best person from each of the previous weeks which i will pull up now because i forgot to do so yeah so let's discuss this so so are these are the ones that amir nominated these are not your choices this is um this is what amir suggested for each of the first six episodes okay. and you'll see that for each week he, he names the worst person and then the belt holder up until now so for example in week one he says that richard's girlfriend was the worst person which i think we agree about yeah that's fine. and that's fine. and that makes her the title holder in week two he says that it was the shoe salesman who kind of gives larry a hard time about returning the shoes um and that he would take control of the belt there because he was even worse than richard's girlfriend yeah so i don't know about you Av. i disagree i think richard's girlfriend is still the worst through two episodes yeah i agree um in episode three porno right, kill so, so I, i'm updating our official chart here so amir you've been overruled although we give you credit for the good idea yes this is amir's idea maybe yeah. we'll even call it the uh the amir of the Curb. amir bednarsh worst person of the <laughs> Yeah. Well, it should be like, oh, Richard's girlfriend was the Amir in yeah. season, in episode one. So I, I said his full name. Let's uh, we'll call him Amir B. Ah, we'll call him A. Yeah, we'll Marsh. <laughs> yeah. Joke. All right. So in episode yes. three, Porno Gill, who's the uh, worst person in that episode? Um, he recommends the old lady on the road. I think that's right. Yeah. And I think I would say she takes the belt at that point. Now, she's definitely crazier than Richard's girlfriend. Yeah, that's fine. I'll give it to her. All right, so the old lady on the road, she's the uh, the title holder through three episodes. Now we get to the bracelet, episode four. Who's the worst person in that episode? Um, he proposes the restaurant captain. Um, I think alternately you could also say in that episode it's Richard Lewis because he com- also acts like a complete asshole to Larry. Yeah, I would say Especially Richard. Especially at the end. I mean, uh, so the guy blocks his car out, but Richard like knows that Larry wants his bracelet and like tries to steal it. And yeah, I mean the guy. Friend. The guy does. The guy does more than block his car. Like he blocks his car and then refuses to move it when Larry tells yeah. him that he's blocking his car. Um, but I think Richard Lewis is worse because yeah, because he's his friend and like Larry's asking him to help him out and like when he sees that Larry wants the bracelet now, he should say, "Oh, you know, this is obviously your bracelet." Not, notwithstanding the fact that you told me last night that I could have it, if you've switched your mind, then yeah. it should be yours now. Yeah, so um, we're we're, so, yeah. we're overruling Amir here. We're gonna say Richard Lewis. And um, who's worse, Richard Lewis in the, like through this episode or the old lady on the road? Yeah, I mean, the old lady is crazier, but I think Richard Lewis is worse. All right, Richard Lewis, the worst person uh, holding. And it's funny because in the most recent episode of Curb, Richard Lewis referred to Larry David as the greatest asshole who ever roamed the earth. But uh, Richard's yeah, holding that Richard, title through four episodes. Yeah, through four episodes. Okay, then yeah. we get to last week's episode, episode five, Interior Decorator. Um, in which Amir labels the interior decorator, the eponymous uh, interior decorator, that is, yeah. as the worst yeah. person of that episode. Um, I think she is definitely the worst person of that episode, but I think probably not worse than Richard Lewis. He's, again, more crazy than than evil. 
Um, although she kind of escalates it more than necessary at the end. But I think Richard yeah. Lewis still works. I don't know if you agree. No, I definitely agree. The interior decorators seem kind of fun, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, that brings us to this episode. I think we all agree that the neighbor Dean is the worst person in this episode. And I would say worst person that we've seen in the series so far. I think what he does in this episode is even worse than Richard Lewis. He's just like from the very first start, from the very first scene that he's in, just a complete asshole, just like blackmailing Larry for no reason, gets so much out of Larry. He gets a client out of him. He gets $500 in cash that he should not get because like he's his neighbor and like just returning something to your neighbor should not require a reward. He gets to meet Julia Louise Dreyfus, and he still won't do the simple thing as just like signing a form, which will take five seconds and does not harm him in any way. He's just, he's like one of the worst people you've ever seen on anything who, yeah. like, is, who doesn't murder people. Then. Yeah, he's very, very bad. And I mean, look, to be clear, no one should talk to their spouse or any other person on earth the way Susie talks to Jeff. And so the fact that she's not even like, not even being like considered here for worst person just shows how awful Dean is. But Dean is really irredeemably bad. And and like to come with, I think we're going to exclude Larry from this category, right? Like we're not gonna we're not gonna say in like a given episode, oh, Larry is the worst person because like he's kind of like the default bad person. Although as we've pointed out so far, like he hasn't been that bad in, in season one. Yeah, I mean he's he's less bad than than Susie. He's less bad than Jeff. You know, I, I would argue that he's been less bad than Cheryl in a lot of ways. So. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I think, I, think we're, well in I think we have some bad Larry things coming up where he'll, yes. he'll get his opportunity to be an asshole. But I yes. think even so, this is going to be, you know, like an other than Larry David category. Yeah. Um, now, another thing I know you wanted to talk about was how, how Curb decides which actors are going to come on the show and play themselves and then which actors are going to play a character, especially it being interesting when very, very famous people are playing characters or when relatively non-famous people are playing themselves, right? Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that, like, I think uh, Rob and Akiva have talked about a bunch. And when we get to, like, later in the series, and especially we are in season 10, like, it, com- it becomes completely incoherent where there's no rhyme or reason to, like, who plays themselves and who is playing, like, a, a made-up character. But I think possibly and we'll see that in the earlier seasons there's probably there might be more of a logic to it and i thought it would be interesting to see if we could like establish some sort of like mendoza line where we could see like for the most part if you're more famous than this person you play yourself and if you're less famous you're just a character on the show and see how well that holds over time so you know so far we've had according to my count we've had one two three four five six seven people other than larry david who played themselves um, and that is Richard Lewis, Kathy Griffin, Ted Danson, Mary Steenburgen, Diane Keaton, kind of. We don't even really know if it was her. Well, so it uh, was Ju- It was her audio. It was her audio. Okay, yeah. fine. So we could count that, I guess. Uh, Julia Louise-Dreyfus and Brad Hall, her husband. Um, now, of those, I would say probably the, the two most famous, clearly by far, are Ted Danson and Julia Louise-Dreyfus. I would say they're probably, they're similarly well, famous. Well, I'd say I Diane think- Keaton is more famous, probably. But we don't actually see her. We just hear her. Yeah, but she's not even really in the episode. I'm inclined to not really count her because okay. she's like kind of like in the background. Um, I, you, know, you, you know, I think reasonable people could disagree about who's more famous in 2000, Ted Danson or Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I think they're probably pretty similar. Um, the least famous is probably either Mary Steenburgen or Richard Lewis, depending on like well, no, which Brad areas Hall. of pop culture. for sure Brad Hall. Yeah, okay, fine. Brad Hall, that's true. I didn't, I didn't include him. Yeah, I forgot about but, but hold on. But what I'll say is this. I think what's interesting is if you look at the, peop- the, the ones who are going to be the least famous are the ones who are only on 
because they have a, a natural connection either with Larry right. or, or with another person on the show. And so, yeah, so Brad that, and Larry are the spouses, the real-life spouses of their more famous real-life spouses. That's why they're on. Correct. And, yeah, and so when we go they, to- they should they should almost be like removed from this yeah. category because like they're not in on their own fame. They're in yeah. on somebody else's fame. But also Richard so, Lewis is on because he's a real life friend of Larry David's going back 50 years. So that's kind of the same. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. And he's also a recurring character. So it's like kind of like once, maybe the first yeah. time he's in, you know, it's like, oh, who's that? But like after the second or third time, you just like know him because he's a character on the show ongoing. So um, I guess for now, it's Kathy Griffin is probably the most famous person who's played themselves, the who is not a recurring character on the show. Well, he's I think she's both the most the most and the least at this point. Well, after Julia and Ted, but yeah. Right, except we're, yeah, yeah. they're going to be ongoing characters. So yeah, yeah so yeah, Kathy true. Griffin right now I think is kind of like the line in the sands, but obviously, you know, we'll, we'll update that. Yeah, and the other interesting thing of, is how do we judge 2020 who these people are relative to 2000 when they came on? So for example, um, you know, obviously Jeff Garland, Susie Essman, Cheryl Hines are all now very famous from Curb. When the show started, they were not very well known. They were sort of like small-time actor comedians. Bob Odenkirk, by the way, when he came on the episode, was not famous at all. I would say the only person who, when they came on, had any kind of notoriety who plays a character is Nia Vardalos, who played the lawyer in the last episode because she had already made yeah. a big fat Greek wedding. Yeah, I mean, Bob Odenkirk was, I think he was like on SNL already, and you know he, he did the, uh, that show with uh, David Cross. Yeah. Um, so like he wasn't like you know an A-list celebrity by any means, but like I think he had some notoriety. But I I would agree that Neo Vardalos was probably more famous because she was like the lead in a movie that a lot of people saw. Um, so okay, so right now I guess we're gonna say that like the the line is somewhere between Neo Vardalos and Kathy Griffin. Yeah. And by the way, um, I would say Neo Vardalos is really an example of a one-hit wonder, right? Yeah, I don't I don't think she's very well known for for much else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this I think will be fun to kind of like monitor as we go forward and see if like that range between Nia and Kathy kind of like solidifies as a real f- line of fame that like if you're above it, you're you're yourself and you're below it, you're not. And of course, we expect that like even if we we do establish a general rule, there will always be exceptions because, you know, obviously Larry David didn't think very deeply probably about these sorts of things. Um, but I think it'll just be, you know, it'll be fun to see. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I also did just for completion's sake, I went back and looked at the 1999 special, uh, how many people played themselves in that episode uh, or in that in that show, whatever you want to call it. And there were 12 of them, but those were all people who basically had some kind of connection. They were either a friend of Larry David's, a comedian. They had a connection to Seinfeld, you know, Jason Alexander, Larry Charles, et cetera. The one exception being Caroline. Caroline Ray. Caroline Ray. Yeah, she she she, if, she was the only one. Uh, now, she might be friends with Larry, but yeah, but it wasn't exactly clear. Uh, what she was doing in the episode. So she was, she sort of played herself. And I'd, ar- I'd argue she's less famous than Kathy Griffin. So she's probably the least famous person with no natural connection to Seinfeld or Larry David to have played themselves. So, yeah. Yeah. Kathy Griffin is definitely more famous than her uh, yeah. in part because of her appearance on Seinfeld. But I yeah. think in general, she's yeah. just more well known. I mean, this is, uh, you know, before the days of when she was decapitating fake presidents, but yeah. I think she was still pretty famous back then, even. Yeah. All right, Av, so uh, the, the next question before we get to our mailbag is uh, how do we rank this episode? So um, I'll start with me. I think I said this at the top of the episode. When I ranked these episodes a couple of years ago, I had this as the second lowest among the six episodes we've seen so far. But I'm re-ranking. Susie's performance is just incredible, a tour de force to me. 
So I'm going to say, I'm going to give this uh, pretty, 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 pretty good. That's three and a half. I, I might even go to four. No, I'll, should I go four? No, I'll stick with three and a half. But I really like this episode. Really like this episode. Yeah, I really liked it as well. I will go to uh, four pretties. Pretty, pretty, oh, wow. pretty, pretty good. Um, I think this is the best episode of the series so far that we've seen. Um, it was very, you know, having Julia Louis-Dreyfus there was very fun, even though, like, she didn't, like, do anything particularly great. She kind of just, like, was her, you know, sarcastic self, annoyed at Larry. Um, it's fun to see people annoyed at Larry. I think that's one of the things that we're going to learn is that even if, like, you, you're kind of Team Larry versus Team Cheryl, it's just, like, funny to watch Larry David get abused sometimes, um, and Jeff, for that matter. So I think that's part of the reason why we also, you know, put aside Susie's verbal abuse because it's directed at Jeff, and we don't mind seeing Jeff getting yelled at. Yeah, yeah. Uh, should we get to our mailbag? Uh, we should. Um, so we already covered the email from Amir, so we'll move on. We have three other emails this week. The first comes from a new emailer, um, a fellow named George Walters, who we're very happy to have on board. He says, hi, guys. Let me start by saying your podcast is great. Thank you, George. For someone who's Wait, only great. started watching... What? Great. He said great. He oh, just said pretty, great. Pretty, pretty. All right. Yeah, just great. Not well. Is great is better than pretty great, right? Well, I don't like, know. like pretty is pretty is the qualifier. Yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't go with the theme of the show. But yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. You can take that up with George. You have his email. <laughs> For someone who's only just started watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, it's great to be able to listen to some in-depth talk about the show as no one I know actually watches it anymore. So please don't get bored of doing the podcast. I don't think we will. I think we're going to continue. Um, some of us might get quarantined soon. So, you know, it'll just be an excuse to do more podcasts. Secondly, I'm not aware if you guys have seen or even heard of a 90s comedy show here in the UK called I'm, Al I'm Alan Partridge. I've never heard of that, Alec. I don't know if you, if you have. No, I, I, I ended up watching a bunch of clips online because of his email. Mm -hmm. And I definitely, I think I might have seen a couple of them before, but I, uh, you know, I might have just seen like, um, you know, different clips from different shows and forgotten who, what it was from. So I'm not exactly sure. Now, now is this related to the Alan Partridge par project? <laughs> isn't that, that, isn't that like the band that make the, oh, the that's Chicago Alan, Bulls? I thought you were making a joke. It's Alan Parsons. It's Alan Parsons. Alan Parsons. Okay. Yeah. Alan Parsons. Okay. That makes more sense. Um, so he's not. So George says, if you haven't heard of it, you should check it out because he's realized that Larry David and Alan Partridge are very similar. They're both celebrities and both very self-destructive in the way that they live. Um, of course, Larry's based on the real life Larry David and Al Alan Partridge is fictional. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on the comparison of the two if you've seen or heard of Alan Partridge. So Alex says he has checked that out. I don't know if you have any uh, response to that specific comparison. But um, I have not seen it yet. I mean, he's like an antisocial asshole, so that's one thing in common. But yeah, um, okay, um, yeah, all right. They have some similarities, well, but I, I'd have to see right. more. I just saw, I just saw, like, I watched like the clips for about fifteen. Yeah. Okay. Well, very. Thank you very much for that email, George. And yeah, anyone who's interested know. should check out uh, Alan Partridge and report back to us on if you think that Alan is a British Larry David. Um, next email comes from Zach Brooks. He asks whether Julia Louise Dreyfus's son who woke up in this episode is the same kid who ended up playing basketball at Northwestern. Is that something that comes up later in Curb? No, he in real life. Julia's son. Oh, in real son. life. Julia's son, oh, her son plays Northwestern. Okay, yeah. got it. I'm not a college basketball fan, so I yeah. didn't know that. Um, I'm guessing probably not that the kid in, that we see is an actor, um, but maybe. Yeah. 
Um, he says that cutoff time is a classic curb moment, but now that everyone has cell phones on silence, is there really still a cutoff time? Yeah, we discussed this. I agree yeah. with Zach. I feel like I get texts at all hours of the day, especially since I have friends in multiple time zones. Yeah, I mean, that's also another aspect of it is that like it's just you could contact anyone all around the world now, uh, which wasn't the case. So it kind of all goes out the window. Um, interestingly, he says he, he gives this only a four out of five because he it loses points because Susie is unbearable in this episode. Wait, um, you don't so like Susie th- yelling at Jeff? <laughs> That's what Zach says. So, you know, we'll have to take that up with Zach because he seems to not have enjoyed what was one of the best parts of this episode. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. And our, our last email, as always, comes from number one fan Olin Allen. Love this week's episode. I thought the pacing was excellent and there was a good mix of confrontations. Compared to the previous episode, The Interior Decorator, this one always had a forward momentum. There wasn't really any lulls and it was a fun, enjoyable watch. Larry Charles directed it superbly, and I will keep an eye out for that in future episodes. Susie's breakout role probably has to give her the MVP for this episode and for what Curb was to become. The Wayne is in top form. Who's Wayne? Wayne. Oh, Wayne is Wayne is Dean. Wayne. Wayne oh, Fetterman. Fetterman is, yeah, yeah, the actor is the guy yeah. who plays Dean. Okay, that's my. Yeah. Oh, I was confused. Yeah. Um, in my household, around nine thirty would have been the cutoff. Though personal mobiles have taken on their own rule since then. Yeah, we're all. I think we're pretty much all on the same page about yeah. that. He well, every, everyone except Doctor Jim. <laughs> yeah four and a half pretty goods out of five unfortunately half, i've misplaced wow. my notebook so i can't see how it ranks against the other episodes <laughs> very good from olin um all right all right so next week we are back with uh double a mco how do you pronounce that amco i don't know I just amco know commercials yeah double a yeah. mco exactly beep beep um i'll say this um Av, I, i'm sort of uh, under quarantine here a little bit because of this uh, virus that's going on but uh, one upside of that is that I have all the time in the world to watch uh, reruns on HBO Go of my favorite show, Curb Enthusiasm. And I have to say that, uh, you know, I might be on quarantine, but if I get to watch Curb all day, that's pretty, 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 pretty good.